This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Mr. Speaker, we're also making uh, improvements to the patent regime, uh, which again will help, uh, will help the innovative climate in Canada. First of all, we're allowing for uh, experimentation on patents and not calling it patent infringement. Mr. Speaker, it's been said that the patent, uh, the patent system is a bargain in which a person gets a monopoly for 20-odd years for an invention uh, after having disclosed the secret of the invention publicly. Um, yes, that's true, and we don't want people to infringe upon the economic rights of the patent holder. But that being said, it isn't an infringement on the economic rights of the patent holder because it's not an absolute right for some other researcher to be doing experiments with the patent in order to perhaps develop another invention or improve an invention. And so we've we've recognized that in the statute. One of Canada's long-standing digital and economic policy concerns has involved innovation, with fears that the Canadian economy is failing to keep pace with other more innovative economies. Some point to intellectual property as a critical part of the policy equation, arguing that stronger IP laws would help incentivize greater innovation. Economist Nancy Gallini, a professor emeritus in the Vancouver School of Economics at the University of British Columbia, and Aidan Hollis, an economics professor at the University of Calgary, recently released an interesting report for the Institute for Research on Public Policy titled To Sell or Scale Up. Canada's Patent Strategy in a Knowledge Economy. The report examines the role of patents and patent policy in Canadian innovators' decisions to sell their IP rather than to continue to develop it in Canada and the incentives that seems to drive these decisions. It also provides policy analysis, concluding that Canadian patent laws are unlikely to move the dial in a significant way on innovation. I'm joined this week by Professor Hollis, who discusses the report, its link to innovation policy, and what the government should be considering to address ongoing innovation concerns. Aidan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you've had the, the chance to join because the, the study that you did together with Nancy Gallini for the Institute for Research on Public Policy, IRPP, I think is one, is a real must read for people that are focused on, on patents, on innovation policy in Canada, because in many ways it kind of hits a sweet spot around a lot of the discussion that's been taking place in Canada over the last number of years around the role of intellectual property, the, the desire for better innovation results. And it really asks, I think, some really important questions about the development of IP in Canada and whether it stays in Canada. So can you start us off, I guess, by talking a bit about what you examined and why? Sure, I'd probably, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't start off by just saying that it was really a pleasure to work with uh, Nancy Golini, my co-author on this uh, study, uh, who was also my supervisor uh, m- many years ago uh, and who uh, had initially um, discussed with the IRPP, the Institute for Research and Public Policy, uh, this uh, idea and then and then approached me to join with her and, and it was really a pleasure to um, to collaborate with her on this. Um, An interesting thing about this particular study is that uh, it started off as a request to do 
a new take on innovation in Canada, boosting the demand side. And that's what the research was supposed to be about. So like all good research, we started there and then wandered off somewhere totally different because that was what we thought was of interest. So we didn't really deliver what it was that was expected because what we found wasn't exactly what we expected. We actually quickly came to the conclusion that most important innovation in the world is actually uh, uh, demanded globally. And um, so Canadian demand isn't going to be the thing that drives global innovation. So uh, the, the study kind of uh, progressed from there as we were looking for uh, what, what was happening with, uh, with the innovations that were being developed in Canada. You know, were they actually being used by Canadian innovators and what was happening with them and what we rapidly uh, discovered and what we were really struck by was the uh, very high rate of assignment of patents that effectively means sale or transfer of the ownership rights to the patent um, to non-Canadians. Okay, so for, for the, the non-economists who are listening, let's try to, if I, I'm hoping we might be able to unpack a little bit what you had to say. Can we start with the what what you mean when you say the demand or the supply of on the innovation side and then get into the question of where patents come in and where those patents tend to go sure um i mean the demand for patented innovations um is basically a demand coming from either consumers or uh, corporations for technologies that are going to be of value to them in some way, either because they reduce costs or because they somehow create value. Um, and on the supply side, uh, we get patented innovations from, <clears throat> from really um, people and companies, especially that are thinking about how can they uh, deliver an invention which is um, novel, useful and non-obvious, that's a requirement for a patent. Um, something that's going to be uh, create value either through cost reduction or, or else um, being something new that people are interested in or, or that can be used. Sure, so we've got businesses, individuals, others that are out there looking to create new innovations, oftentimes using the patent system as one of the mechanisms to protect or bring those products to market. And we've got the businesses and the public, again, looking for innovative services, products, and the like that may, that may have patents associated with them. You started taking a look at the, develop, at the patenting practices by some of those Canadian innovators. And, sure. and, and what did you find? What we um, found that I think is, is really uh, striking and was striking to us certainly was that um, currently around 45% of the patents that Canadians apply for in the United States are immediately assigned to a foreign company. So maybe I need to step back. Um, rather than focusing on uh, Canadian patents, we actually focused on US patents. Um, the reason for this, uh, again, is that um, uh, essentially uh, it's, it's global patents and glo innovations which have a global market, which are sort of empirically important. Um, if you have some innovation which is going to have really uh, a great value, then you probably don't want to just patent it in Canada. 
because patents themselves are, are national. Um, so you want to get a U.S. patent. And there are many more patents issued to Canadians in the United States than there are patents issued to Canadians in Canada. I mean, that is the place to bring a patent, that you, you know, to obtain a patent if you, if you think that it, it might have some commercial importance. Okay. If it's really so, important, then you're going to uh, try to target more countries than just the United States. Right. So that makes sense. And I think Canadians would recognize we're a small market. If, if you think you've got something that's globally relevant, you're going to patent it in the United States, maybe perhaps in Europe or elsewhere. You may do it locally as well because that's where you're located. But the, exactly. the patents that really make a difference on a global stage, the U.S. is the market that innovators think first of. Right. And it's also useful for us to uh, look at uh, U.S. patents because then we can compare what Canadians are doing in the U.S. to what other countries were doing in the U.S., all kind of on a, um, an even playing field. Um, so it enabled some comparisons across countries as well. Okay. So the examination is on U.S. patent data by Canadians. So what, what did you find within that U.S. patent? So within, within that, that patent? U.S. patent data, we found that uh, about 45% of patents are assigned basically on the day of issue to uh, a foreign corporation. Um, and um, if you track what happens to the patents over time, you find that uh, there's even more of them that are assigned later. So there's an opportunity, of course, to um, own the patent for a while and then uh, maybe you transfer it to a Canadian corporation, and then the Canadian corporation sells it off, or maybe you just, um, uh, the patentees might sell it in due course to a U.S. corporation or another foreign corporation. Right off the bat, we've got Canadian businesses patenting in the United States, and not quite half, but nearly half of those patents get transferred as soon as they get issued. Uh, that's correct. Um, and then uh, it's about an almost another 15% that are uh, transferred within the next uh, few years. So it comes up to around 60% of Canadian invented patents or inventions with a Canadian inventor are transferred uh, that are patented in the US get transferred, um, you know, within a few years to a foreign owner. I think it's just uh, important to note that this number has been increasing uh, substantially over time. It used to be, if you look back uh, 20 years or so, that it was around maybe 15 or 20 percent of loss of uh, basically patent ownership. And uh, now it has increased um, uh, to sort of into the 50 percent range. Well, that's an enormous shift in, in just a number of years as Canadians increasingly are at least from a practice perspective, transferring ownership of those patents uh, very quickly, either in, either immediately upon issue or within a number of years. Being uh, economists, we looked at the economics literature to see if we could identify some explanations for this. So, I mean, there have been quite a few studies of you know along some of these kinds of lines. Uh, so, the, there's a Council of Canadian Academies study recently which attributes uh, the transfer of patents to a lack of managerial expertise and IP skills in Canada um, that are required to guide technology firms as they expand into global markets. Although it seems to us like that's something that should probably always have been the case. I mean, a, a lot of the transfer, of course, happens because those Canadian inventors are actually employees of foreign firms in Canada. So, right. you know, so if you're uh, working for uh, Microsoft in, in uh, Canada, then, you know, when you, you come up with some invention, 
which is patentable, um, you're going to uh, get it patented and it will be transferred immediately to Microsoft. Right. So there's at least a couple of theories that, that you've just floated or that have been floated. One, simply that many of the Canadian patents are Canadian in name in terms of who the inventor might be. But in fact, it's a foreign company that's been behind it, which would explain why you see the transfer. The The other study you cited, though, suggests that there's a underwhelming set of knowledge when it comes to IP and that Canadians maybe just don't know enough to hang on to their patents or to to emphasize the value of patents for those that believe that's an important factor in terms of economic growth and innovation? Right, but even if you go with the first explanation um, that basically it's uh, Canadians working for foreign firms who are getting patents and then transferring them immediately. Um, the challenge there is why has this increased relative to the number of patents being granted to Canadians working in Canadian firms? Sure. Um, do you have a, do you have a theory as to why that might be? Sort of the the innovation in this paper, if you like, is is to say, well, what does the economics literature say about what might have happened in the last um, few years that are, is making um, the transfer of patents, essentially the transfer of innovations or the ownership of innovations to foreign companies, more attractive than keeping them in Canadian uh, companies. So it's, it's maybe useful to begin by just pointing out that patenting is expensive. Uh, just obtaining and maintaining a patent in the U.S. can run sort of in the $50,000 to $100,000 uh, kind of range um, because you need to engage in searching for prior art to make sure that you're not patenting something that's already been patented. Um, you know, you need to pay your patent agents, you've got filing fees. Um, if it's international, you may have to think about translation costs. You may have to think about defending the patent in due course. There are a number of reasons why uh, your data and certainly and some of the other, some other economists who've been looking at this issue point to the challenges that smaller firms face in, in, in a global patent environment. How does Canada compare to some of the other countries, given that you were able to take a look at a data set that saw not just Canadian patenting activity in the United States, but the patenting activity of other countries as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think maybe actually, let me uh, take a step back and just emphasize how big the size differences have become. If you look at the, um, the stock market value of um, you know some sort of uh, tech companies in Canada and the US, and you look at the sort of US champions like uh, Apple, for example, or Google, they're kind of on the order of a hundred times the size of the largest Canadian companies. That's the order of magnitude difference. Um, and we're seeing this in, in a variety of areas, you know, whether it's sort of in aerospace or in pharmaceuticals, there are the, the US, uh, the, the large sort of US companies are, you know, 20 to 100 times larger. Um, so there really is a, a big uh, size difference. So if, if when we're to um, then turn to the question of, well, how does Canada compare to other countries? It turns out that uh, Canadian firm or Canadian invent Canadian invented patents are much more likely to be assigned um, than patents from other countries, excepting Israel, which is maybe a little bit surprising. Israel is a, a, an innovation hotspot uh, on a sort of per GDP basis. If you scale the number of patents per GDP. Uh, 
Israel's really a, a, a very strong innovator. It has a lot of US patents. And they also transfer quite a lot of them um, immediately. But they have so many patents that they end up with still a lot of patents. Whereas in Canada, um, we're actually kind of a, you know, a leader in transferring patents to, the, to uh, foreign ownership. And we, we end up with uh, not so many as a result. Okay, so we're, we're a bit of an outlier in that regard. And there are clearly going to be other countries that may face some of the same kinds of disparity in terms of size, although it's it, it, certainly the numbers, as you cited, uh, are eye-opening, I think, for many to, to better understand just how small some Canadian firms are relative to these large U.S. giants. It, it strikes me that the issues and quest policies around innovation policy in Canada has has been a preoccupation, certainly for the current government, almost since it took office the first time in 2015. Why don't we talk a little bit about what these findings mean from an innovation policy perspective? Because there's certainly some out there that say, well, the way that you drive greater innovation in Canada is, is at least in part, if you strengthen patent laws, give more rights to patent holders, that will create the incentive for entities to go out and patent. Does that really hold, though, based on the kind of findings that you're finding that, in fact, Canadians, once they invent, are quite likely to transfer those patents to other entities or do so at, at a higher rate than what we see elsewhere? Um, the thing is that uh, Canadian patenting is not what's going to drive uh, anything. Um, the reason is that Canada... They, they, well, patents are, are national, so um, getting a patent in Canada only gives you um, sort of the, the benefit of, of protection inside Canada. And in any case, if you strengthen Canadian patent law, that actually just gives equal protection to owners of Canadian patents from other countries anyway. So it doesn't, it doesn't really sort of increase the incentive to do research in Canada. Um, you know, you could just as well do research in Germany and then you get the same protection in Canada as if you'd done the research in Canada. So Canadian patent laws is really not the key here. Okay, so if not Canadian patent law, in part because, as you've noted off the top, innovators tend to look elsewhere anyway, and so it's just not that much of an incentive to say that you've got certain rights in, under the Canadian patent system. Are, are there policy lessons to be learned from what you've from from what you've identified in the research that Canada might think about when they start talking about either innovation policy or perhaps addressing that question of how do we encourage greater patent retention in Canada to the extent to which that's viewed as as an important policy goal. Sure, I mean I'll start off by saying that you know having branch plants of foreign companies operating in Canada and hiring researchers. To, to engage in innovation isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, <clears throat> it, given the number of patents that we actually get to own and keep, it's actually a benefit if we have even more research being done in Canada, because uh, why, why wouldn't we want people working at, for example, Microsoft Canada and having uh, good jobs and doing that? I mean, they're, they're well-paid for their work, presumably. So that, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. But there are some things which are kind of interesting, uh, I guess, to think about in terms of policies. And one is that um, the structure of tax credits in Canada is that if you're a small firm engaged in innovation, then you get a much more generous tax credit than if you're a larger firm. 
Um, so of course, that just means that if you're a small, that, that it really becomes attractive to do sort of the first stages of innovation, but not necessarily to scale up uh, in Canada. So in some ways, given the tax system, it's not so surprising that we're going to get basically um, lots of small firms, which then decide that uh, they're happy enough to transfer assets to foreign companies. The second thing is that Canada relies relatively heavily on tax credits versus direct funding of research. Some of the countries that we saw that uh, seem to be relatively successful in um, retaining and um, sort of uh, commercializing, if you like, um, the, the patents that they, they develop are actually um, uh, countries that have much more direct funding of research. And what does that direct funding means? It means direct sponsorship of innovation by the government. And how does that usually work? That directed funding tends to be centered on specific areas of technology. The idea here, of course, is that you have some kind of uh, an industry focused, and you can see how this uh, this can work. You know, when, well, if you look at Silicon Valley, it's the, the perfect example of that. The success in Silicon Valley seems to have prompted more and more success in Silicon Valley. And why is that? That's because that's where the expertise was. So if you wanted to set up a technology company, that was a place to go and hire people or people would go and work at a, a large company uh, and then decide that, uh, yeah, this is working for me, but I now would like, you know, I've got some expertise. Maybe I, I have a great idea. I could start my own spinoff. And where are they going to locate? Exactly where they already are. We've seen this in Canada as well, right? When, when uh, Research in Motion um, was doing really well with the BlackBerry phones, there were a lot of spinoffs in Waterloo. Um, and there was an enormous uh, uh, ICT innovation happening in the Waterloo region. And now that um, Research in Motion is kind of uh, diminished as a company, um, a lot of the accompanying energy in that area has also gone and there isn't so much patenting at all. And it's not just that there's less patenting by RIM, there's less patenting by everybody else as well. And the, the secret here seems to be that success in a technology area requires some scale. And I, again, we do see this in a variety of areas. You see this uh, kind of like there's a, I guess in Montreal, there's a, um, a real strength in um, animation. And so then you see more companies developing, uh, you know, that kind of follow on from the industry leaders. Yeah, I, I know I'm left wondering, you know, the examples that you provide, I think will resonate with a lot of people because they, they're really instantly recognizable in terms of the success stories that we've seen in Canada. But there, there does feel that there's almost a bit of a chicken and egg challenge here where it sounds like what you're saying is that you need to get big, have large players to be globally relevant and to be able to compete in such a way that perhaps the incentives become less about transferring patents to others and more perhaps about acquiring other patents or at least being able to to play in that international sandbox then of course the question becomes how do you get that large in the first place because right now the data tells us that we've got a lot of smaller companies and we're having trouble getting to that next stage exactly um so <clears throat> of course chicken and egg problems are always hard to solve um and they you know, the strategy in um, many countries has been to say, 
let's actually focus some uh, research money into specific areas and and do you know really support some specific industries because we think that they're uh, going to be technologically uh, of interest in the future. Um, and that doesn't seem like a, a crazy strategy, but it does uh, come with some substantial challenges. And the first one is the question of whether governments themselves are able to pick well. Um, you know, are they are they in a good position to say, oh, I, I think robotics is going to be really uh, an important area, so that's where we should put our money. Um, and you know, of course the governments that do that tend to be doing the same thing as other governments. The second thing is, that, you know, if you have to put money into a particular industrial sector, and the question is whether the spending in that area causes taxes to increase so much that other sectors are, are hurt more. So the, there's a real question as to whether the economies of scale from basically having a sector-specific innovation strength um, are really high enough to make this worthwhile. And uh, the, the third big question is, well, how much spending is going to be required? And we've seen in, um, you know, there, there's a substantial literature, for example, on tax competition between cities where, uh, you know, they all try to reduce taxes to attract uh, businesses. And um, uh, we don't want to get into a kind of a race to the bottom uh, where I, I guess, uh, you know, governments are all basically uh, picking the same sectors and then saying uh, we should really have a specialization in this particular area and then competing over that um, and essentially um, destroying the value of, of having a sector strength anyway. Yeah, I mean, there, there, I think there has been some attempt to try to, to essentially do some of the things that you're suggesting, the super cluster Exactly. Investments that the government put forward, and there's been, for example, a great deal of emphasis on artificial intelligence with the view that Canada can be a leader in the AI space. But as right. we, uh, but as we now have you know, a new government or a re-elected government in place, and, and one would think that innovation policy will continue to be an area of import. What it's what it sounds like you're you're heading on this is that you know to the extent to which those there are those that have advocated that there needs to be a strong linkage between strong Canadian IP laws as a driver for innovation. It sounds like we've got a scale problem more than we've got an IP problem. And addressing that through potentially some of the kinds of tax measures or strategic investment measures that you've identified may well provide at least a better shot at becoming globally relevant as opposed to trying to compete with ever stronger intellectual property rules. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, uh, that's right. I mean, the, the government also has a new intellectual property strategy um, <clears throat> where they're trying out a couple of different things. They're providing some support to small firms uh, to be able to sort of see how to uh, get value out of their patented technologies, and um, and also um, trying to create in uh, green technologies a, a kind of a patent pool, where there may be some core technologies that are are um, collected and then shared uh, between firms. Um, the problem is that the amount of money that they're putting into this. Um, 
is, uh, to my way of thinking, not likely to make a material difference. Their, their intellectual property strategy is funded at around $85 million over five years. Think about sort of trying to make a real difference in technology for 15 million or whatever it is per year. That's pr probably uh, not going to have um, much of an impact. But as governments begin to grapple or continue, I suppose, to grapple with some of these issues, uh, let's hope that they that they take advantage of some of the kinds of data that you've been putting forward. So, Aiden, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure, Michael. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.